today's episode, The 101st Battle at Tam Ki, Vietnam. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget, in my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, I talk to David Church about alternative modern horror. In my podcast, Technology in Space, I talk with Eric Berger about the early years of SpaceX. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Ed Sherwood, Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Army, retired, author of Courage Under Fire, the 101st Airborne's Hidden Battle at Tam Kai, published or to be published March 30th, 2021 by Casemate. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it, Chris. Good, good. Um, so, obviously, you were part of what you wrote about in the book. So, uh, how about, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your time before, how you got into the Army? Well, I have wanted to be in the Army since I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. My mother remarried when I was 10, and she married a sergeant first class, an infantry guy. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty impressed with him, and I just, from about the age of 12, I decided that's what I wanted to do. Went through college so I could get a commission. In fact, my stepdad told me he would kick my rear end if I didn't try and get a commission. He was a sergeant first class, and I made it through and uh, graduated in, in early 68, went immediately into the military, and within a year, I was in Vietnam. Now, did you expect to go to Vietnam? Did you hope to go to Vietnam? or? Well, both. Uh, I expected it. Uh, Vietnam, I, I graduated from high school in 63. Vietnam was starting, just beginning to crank up. And the entire four-plus years I was in college, Vietnam was in the news. Mm-hmm. And the year I graduated was uh, one of the most... Uh, I casually years, so I knew exactly where I was going. Mm-hmm. I signed up to be an infantry officer, and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't backing out of that. And uh, so I was looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know what I was getting into, but I was looking forward to it. Now, at the time, um, did you have the habit of writing? Did you expect maybe to write your story later, or did that just happen over time. That, that was not even in my mind. I did happen to be an English major, but uh, the quick story behind that is I started out as political science major, liked to read, was working full time, and I got started getting close to graduation, and my political science advisor says, you've got another year. Well, my English teacher, English advisor said, well, you can graduate next quarter with all the English credits. <laughs> so I became an English major and graduated. Not no regrets. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, tell me then. I see the book. Obviously, it's chronological. You start a little bit before the battle, and then you discuss the battle. Can you tell me how your how you uh, your approach to writing the book? What would you want to do? Yeah, I actually wrote it backwards. I started with the end of the book, uh, the big battle um, is set up on Hill 376. But as I began to write backwards, 
we were in a battle unlike anything we had been in in several months. I'd been in Vietnam since January, and here it was May, and we were fighting a North Vietnamese unit that was much larger than anything we'd come across. So as I started writing backwards, I thought I ought to go back and pick up the time around Huey uh, and also in the Aishal Valley, because both of those the previous year were high casualty areas. We got out fairly light during those two, uh, two assignments. First away, where the you know the major Tet Offensive was in '68. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted to, to put those two other areas of operation kind of as a set piece to frame how difficult and how much different Tam Key was. Because Tam Key was was any nothing like we had ever seen before. So where was it? This spot. Well, Tam Key uh, was actually in the Americal uh, Division uh, area of operations, right below the 101st. Uh, most people know where Da Nang is, a uh, big marine base. Uh, da Nang is about 40 miles. Well, let me change that, about uh, 40, 50 kilometers north of Tamkey. Tamkey uh, is a coastal province town, and the North Vietnamese were attempting to capture it and overrun it. And the 101st was called on kind of in an emergency tactical situation to come down to the Americal uh, area and, and reinforce and help them out and stop the North Vietnamese, which we did. But it wasn't our normal area of operations, a brand new area for us. Mm-hmm. So what? Uh, so you said you got there in January. Is that correct? Right. Yes. Uh, and so between January and May, uh, tell me a little bit about the weather. You know, you hear about the Vietnamese heat and all that and the rain. Okay. In in January when I got there, it was not very hot. A lot of rain up through the end of February and March. For, for the most part, we were around way. And again, Tet uh, 1969 was coming up. Well, in 1968, way, uh, the city of way, third largest city in South Vietnam, was the very center of the heaviest fighting, uh, basically uh, taken up by the Marines the year before in the first cab. 101st had a very small part uh, in the Battle of Way in 68. So we were expecting big thing, big attacks and all didn't happen. And after a couple of months, we were moved out to the A-shell. Now the A-shell, most guys who've been out there know, it's called the Valley of Death. A lot of casualties, both sides. Well, we got out there and we had light casualties again. And uh, it, it was a lot cooler too. Uh, it was high elevations, uh, lots of clouds, monsoon still going on so we were doing patrolling we had some engagements but basically light engagements so after being up there about a month uh, almost six weeks we got the a special mission to move out of there we didn't even know hamburger hill was going on this was about the middle of may mm-hmm. hamburger hill started on on the 10th of may everybody who knows anything about vietnam knows the Battle of Hamburger Hill was one of the biggest battles for 101st Fall. Well, we didn't even know about it, and we were moved out of there on the 15th of May to go to Tam Key to, for the tactical emergency. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we learned about it later, but well later. Uh, most of us learned about Hamburger Hill after we got back home. But uh, so anyway, there was a big fight up on the north end of the valley. We had been on the south end of the valley, and we were picked up and moved 100 miles south all in a 24-hour period to help the America out. And um, did that did that get to your question? It, it did. I'm rambling a little bit there. So one one question I have is since um, so the book is about uh, the company you are in. Is that correct? Yes. So how um, uh, so how um, close or how how connected were you to the rest of the hundred first, or were were you sort of all together, or did you have your own area of operations? Well, the. When we were in Way, we were pretty spread out. Platoons were operating in independent operations. The companies were pretty separate from each other. We were covering a lot of ground. When we went up to the A-Shell, my battalion was the 1st Battalion, 501st Infantry, which has a long um, storied history in the 101st. 101st has a storied history to start with. but the first of the 501st, called the Geronimo Battalion from its World War II days, operated fairly close together. They didn't ever break us up as a battalion. And when we, you know, when we were in Way, we were spread out. When we were at Aishau, we were a little bit more together. When we were in Tam Key, by tactical necessity, we were very close to each other most of the time because of the size of the enemy. But the, if I could just uh, say, first of the 501st, uh, was delighted to be in that battalion. They jumped in, of course, in, Delft, in, in D-Day mm-hmm. uh, behind enemy lines uh, on the coast of Normandy. They were in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and, uh, you know, most people know about the 101st from the Band of Brothers. Mm-hmm. Well, that was not exactly the first of the 501st, but they were all operating together in World War II. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we we had we took we took two battalions uh, down to Tam Key. Um, First Brigade was in charge of the operation. The operation was called Operation Lamar Plain. Mm-hmm. We took two hundred first battalions and picked up a third battalion from the Americal Division. So it was a fairly large major offensive. Three three battalion. I mean three battalion infantry battalions. Mm-hmm. Then you had the helicopters and the tactical air and the artillery and all of that. It was a large operation. Over 3,000 total soldiers were involved. And uh, it was a 90-day operation, but most of the fighting occurred, the heavy fighting occurred in the first uh, 28, 30 days. I'm speaking with Ed Sherwood, author of Courage Under Fire. You can find more information about the book on the Casemate website. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, Check out FullContactNerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out TechnologyAndSpace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. 
All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So up to that point, um, you know, there's people say, you know, when, the, you know, the guy's coming into Vietnam green and they have to like really learn how to handle what's going on. What, what was your experience up to that before the battle? Thankfully, from January all the way up to May, we didn't get a lot of replacements, and we were pretty much up to strength. We had over 100 soldiers in our company, about 30, 35 in each of the platoons. But once once the battle at Tanki or the fighting at Tanki started, we started taking lots of casualties quickly. We didn't get many replacements. We, we, did, we went down there at, at over 100 soldiers. Well into May, as we started into June, we were almost at 50% strength due to casualties. Mm -hmm. We got a few replacements in, but here's the deal. Hamburger Hill was going on, and they had taken heavy casualties, and they had priority on replacements. Most people don't realize it, but in 69, most of the senior sergeants were gone. Mm -hmm. uh, we had... Each rifle company, for, for example, is supposed to have uh, at least three E7s, Sergeant First Class. We had one. Hmm. We're supposed to have at least 12 E6s. We, we had, uh, that's a staff sergeant. We had two. Uh, so we were really, part of the reason why I wrote the book is, is the remarkable, the amazing, performance of these young junior enlisted soldiers, privates, specialists, young buck sergeants, E5 junior sergeants, they all stepped up and took over positions that normally required senior guys. Mm -hmm. And they fought remarkably in a pretty tough battle. And that, that really is the number one reason I wrote the book. I wanted to tell their story. Mm -hmm. uh, if I could, if I could just digress just a little bit, the reason it's called the 101st Airborne's Hidden Battle, Hamburger mm -hmm. Hill took so many casualties, and in the, Nixon had just come in as president. Uh, it, by May, when the battle started in 10 May, he had not even made his uh, policy statement on how he was going to solve Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He got elected a few months earlier with a promise to end Vietnam. But what happened on May 14th, he made his first policy announcement nationally. And I guarantee you the enemy was listening to it as well. Mm -hmm. He said that he had decided the U.S. would no longer seek a military solution purely in Vietnam. And uh, that caught everybody's attention because war protest movements in 69 were really going heavy. In fact, 69 is where the support for the Vietnam War dropped below 50%. Mm -hmm. So here he comes in and he announces, we're not going to seek a purely military solution. And you got this big battle, Hamburger Hill, going on. And it hit the papers. He made his announcement on the 14th. The battle ended on the 20th of May. And it had all of these heavy casualties. And the the Congress, which was the opposite party from Nixon, mm -hmm. began to, to just say, uh, 
he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, his, his, his policy is bad. Senator Kennedy went to the floor of the Senate and basically said it was the most irresponsible, the Hamburger Hill battle was the most irresponsible battle ever fought. Why are we, if we're not going to seek a military solution, why are we running soldiers up Hamburger Hill in one frontal assault followed by another? It's a good question, mm-hmm. but I think, uh, I, I definitely think he was wrong. Number one, you don't criticize soldiers when they're in the field under fire. Uh, and that, that was bad form. He got about 50% of the newspapers behind him. The other 50 kind of told him he was not acting properly, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, what Nixon did not, Nixon probably did not know that battle was going on him, Hamburger Hill. He certainly did not know that on 15 May, one day after he made his announcement, we started our second battle. Both of these are 101st battles. 3rd Brigade had the Hamburger Hill battle. 1st Brigade had the battle at Tampee. And what happened, the press gravitated to Hamburger Hill, and they did not even know the second battle was going on. And as I write in my book, the senior headquarters in Vietnam, Military Assistance Command Vietnam, Mm -hmm. made sure the media did not know about the second battle. Because what happened with the political uproar of Hamburger Hill, the casualties in, in, in Tam Key or Operation Lamar Plain, there were more killed in Operation Lamar Plain, but Hamburger Hill had more wounded. Huh. But between the two in a 30 day period, there were over a thousand killed, I mean, thousand casualties, uh, killed and wounded. There's already an uproar going. Had the press found out and the American public found out about the second battle, Nixon would have had a hard time trying to bring the war to an end. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a couple of major policies like Vietnamization, turning the war over to the South Vietnamese, uh, bringing troops home. While we were fighting the Battle of Tampi, he announced his first troop withdrawal. He had a good plan but he needed time to execute it. Mm -hmm. And he believed, as everybody else at the senior level believed, had this second battle been announced or been made known, either to Congress or to the American public, he would not have had time to turn the war over to South Vietnam or to start bringing troops. He had probably been told to bring home the troops faster to get to end the war period right then and there. But his big thing was to, to, to peace with honor. He did not want to be the first president to pull out of a war and lose it. Right, right. So let me um, let me ask about, uh, let, let's go back into the details of, oh. of, of the battle. Um, so when you do have casualties like that or you're under strength, um, you know, don't normally when, when you're fighting, don't you sort of require certain sort of pieces in place, so to speak? And if you're lacking... You know, how, how do you properly operate if you're lacking pieces? Or uh, well, the personnel? army, the, the army is it, by its organization, uh, it's built to do that. It's not obviously it's not the preferred way to go, but we had that we had our company commander, and, and really he's one. I don't use the word hero in my book, but all the soldiers who survived in our company know. 
Captain Leland Roy was was the guy who kept most of them from getting killed. We had enough killed and wounded. But the, the long and short of it is we had a big battle on 21 May after we got down to Tam Key. Uh, and we, two platoon, not my platoon, uh, but two of the other platoons had so many casualties that after that fight was over, it was a long day, full day fight, had to combine those two platoons. So our company operated with two infantry platoons rather than three. And then as we started taking casualties, we ended up operating with maybe two squads in a platoon rather than three. And you, what you do is you just downsize uh, and leaders have to step up. And uh, the good thing is you got a commander who's been in Vietnam before. He was one of the only ones that had been. All the others were first-term soldiers. Mm. And you've got a Ford observer who really knew his business. If there was another guy who kept casually as lower than they were, was our Ford Observer. Excellent. Helped me write the book in some ways. Uh, I jokingly say that uh, uh, Paul Wharton, uh, he retired as a full colonel. He's a second lieutenant when he started out in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He kept me straight on artillery matters. <laughs> and I, I talk about the artillery artillery a lot in my book because they had a major important role. But the long and short of it is we had our communicators, we had our radio telephone operators, we had our company headquarters, we had access to supply. We were just reduced in strength and we were reduced in leadership too. And that's where these young junior enlisted guys uh, stepped up. It was like a football team. Yeah. When you get guys injured, people have to move up, whether they've been playing first string or not. Let me rephrase that. All these young soldiers were first stringers, whether they had been the quarterback before, whether they had been, you know, calling signals, maybe not. But they they knew how to do it when they moved up. And if, if I could say that the guys who've reviewed my book really see that's a strength of the book, talking about these young soldiers. And Chris, the reason that's important, they got overlooked in Ken Burns's 18-hour Vietnam series. Mm -hmm. Just about every movie you saw, whether it's uh, Platoon or Steel Jacket or Deer Hunter, all those, the young junior enlisted soldier, he's out there. Most of them were volunteers. A lot of them were draftees. They were given a full effort in the field. If you, if you hear things about morale problems, they're all in the back, you know, in the rear areas. These young soldiers who were fighting out in the field, I, you just couldn't have asked for better. They're as good a soldiers as any soldier we've ever put out in the field for any war. And I count many of them as friends today. Mm, good. Um, first name basis, I have utmost respect for them. Um, and they're, they're quite pleased that finally their story is being told. And uh, most of their families don't even know the stories that they tell. Oh, wow. So so let me ask about the, the mission that uh, you had. I, I've heard that normally the, the approach would be make contact with the enemy, hold them, and then bring the artillery in to, to take them out. Is that what you were doing there? Well, that's what we attempted to do. Our first battle on 21 May, uh, 
the North Vietnamese, they were expert infantry soldiers. They were well-equipped and well-trained. They were not, they were not popular. I mean, they were not Vietnam irregular forces. They were the first line North Vietnamese soldiers supported also by main force VC units. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so, um, they, they were the real McCoy. And to repeat your question again, I started going off in a different direction. I want to come back to that. All right. I just wanted to double check if your mission was, uh, sort of the basic approach of hold, contact with the enemy yeah. hold and artillery. Yeah. These guys were so smart. They would draw us in close before they opened fire and re, in, in concealed positions. They knew that if they fall as close in, we could not use the artillery and attack helicopters, which were our most uh, uh, lethal weapons, so to speak. And so on May 21st, we could not even use our artillery or attack air. I write about that in the book. Uh, we got closed in on them too quickly, I think. And uh, hindsight's, you know, 2020. So uh, you don't know all this on the front end. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, close up, nobody was better than they were. And, and they got automatic weapons, machine guns, all that stuff. But when we went to Hill 376 a week and a half later, we flipped the thing around and we started using artillery more in advance. And we'd bring the attack helicopters right over the trees, over the top of our troops and shoot right in front of the our own friendly troops. And that, that made a big difference in the tactics. Uh, so, you know, the enemy, typically what would happen if the enemy would hit you and they weren't prepared to stand and fight, they would pull back quickly because they knew we were going to bring in artillery or attack air. So they were pretty good at getting out of the way quickly uh, if they weren't ready to stand and fight. And they would not usually stand and fight unless they had concealed bunker positions. What we account, what we encountered in Vietnam, were deep bunkers, sometimes with still reinforced overhead cover and, and concrete walls. I mean, camouflage, uh, and you wouldn't know all of that was there. They could take they could take close in bomb hits, for example. That's that's how the big battle on May twenty first went down. They were all in bunkers, and we weren't. And uh, well, it took a lot of casualties uh, for that. Yeah, that's a huge advantage for them. Um, oh yes, to be well defended like that. They so, couldn't get out of they once they were in those bunkers. Though they were in those bunkers, uh, they, and they they actually didn't get out of those bunkers until the night of the, the day long fight was over. But they decided they didn't want to hang around for another day. So I guess they didn't have the tunnels that uh, they're known for handy. Well, the, this big fight was on a big sort of like an island out in the middle of a dry rice paddy. They had plenty of tunnels between the bunkers, but you couldn't get off that that um, uh, that area. It, it was it was 150 meters long and about 50 meters wide, totally overgrown with vegetation. They couldn't have left that without getting killed, except leaving it at night when they could be seen. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, it was pretty tough fighting them because you couldn't see them. Uh, I, my platoon was not engaged, and I tell in the book why not. But uh, our, you know, our two fullest platoons, 
who had our most senior guys were both caught in that bunker complex for a full day long. And our guys fought. They fought good. They fought excellent. They, they didn't give up. Our, our company motto was never quit. Mm-hmm. And if there was ever a company that lived up to its motto, these young guys did. They just could not, they just would not give it up. Okay. And, uh, I'm proud to call many of them friends today for that very reason. Yeah, definitely. Um, you always want, you want to be secure that the person next to you is going to keep going. Um, that motivated a lot of them. Uh, uh, you know, I've got the word courage, courage under fire, of course, is not named after a movie. And that was a 1996 movie with one of my favorite actors, Denzel Washington. He, he was investigating a friendly fire uh, uh, incident. Mm-hmm. Well, courage under fire is a phrase that is often put in award citations for bravery. Mm-hmm. And that's why, even though that term had been used in a movie, I decided to pull it forward because nothing better described these young soldiers than courage under fire. <laughs> you know, my a young sergeant, E5, who, who died uh, a year and a half ago, uh, probably Agent Orange, uh, congestive heart failure uh, related. Uh, before he died, he, he, he was, I was interviewing him, and he said, I asked him, well, Jim, were you, were you scared? He said, I was scared all the time. And he was my best combat leader. Mm-hmm. And what's, what people that watch the movies don't realize everybody's scared all the time. You know, you can get killed too easy out there. But what makes these guys, young soldiers remarkable? They would overcome their fear. Mm-hmm. The fear is still there, but they would overcome it. And that's the working definition that is often used in the military for courage, mm-hmm. overcoming your fear and getting your duty done. And that's what these guys did time after time. And that's what is not in the Ken Burns' Vietnam series. Mm-hmm. Most of the guys interviewed in that series turn out to be uh, – either war protesters when they get out or their families war protesters or in some cases the guys are killed mm-hmm. but focusing on the courage of the young soldier in combat is it's what again is missing i think that's one reason my book has been endorsed by the uh, national infantry association um, it's kind of unusual from that point of view oh, it's really? not hyped at all uh, in fact uh, I took out a lot of stuff that might embellish a book. I, I don't use profanity in my book. I use profanity in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. All the soldiers use profanity. But I wanted young boys and girls who know their granddad fought in Vietnam to be able to read the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nobody has complained because the profanity is not in there. Yeah. In fact, uh, <laughs> I basically told our own soldiers, if you want profanity in there, you can read it into the story. You were there. You can read it in yourself. Yeah. But I didn't put it in there. And also don't, also don't focus on the grisly wounds. Mm. Uh, you know, somebody was pretty well torn up. There's no need to put that in there. In fact, uh, it, it's true that a lot of fatal wounds are not grisly. It's mm-hmm. One bullet hole or something like that. But uh, 
I just saw no need to do that. And again, I think a lot of people who have read the book like the idea that I didn't try and hype the book mm -hmm. and uh, do all the rah-rah stuff. I just basically did a battle chronicle based on the battle, battle records. And I had about 40 guys that I interviewed. They told me their stories and I wrote their stories and then sent it back to them and said, did I get your story right? Mm -hmm. I put it in my own voice, so to speak. And, and I said, oh, you missed this, you missed that. I'd fix it, send it back to them. But I got the stories in there they wanted to have. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that makes the book pretty real that yeah. they're telling their stories. Yeah, I like your that approach. Um, I think it's it's a good, a good approach. Um, I have no complaints. You know, I personally wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, yeah. I'm speaking with Ed Sherwood author of Courage Under Fire. You can find more information about the book on the Casemate website. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So let me ask you about, uh, you mentioned uh, your sort of modified tactics when you decided to have um, the artillery and tactical air attack the enemy where you thought they would be. Did you get pushback as far as anyone saying, hey, if we don't have a target, you know, if we're just kind of guessing, what are we doing? Well, there were actually, uh, Chris, there were actually plenty of targets. And, and, and basically what happened on Hill, Hill 376 is the climax of the book. Because the fighting on Hill 376 by the 1st and the 501st was, in fact, a decisive engagement of the entire 90-day operation. Hmm. Happened at the end of the first 28 days. And that's why most of the casualties occurred in the first, you know, few weeks. Uh, the decisive battle was fought. Yeah, people still got killed, and there was still fighting going on. But the back of of the enemy was broken uh, on Hill 376, and that's why it's the climax uh, of the book. So anyway, the targets, what happened is the units, and again, I wasn't there. These are stories uh, that uh, have been told me. I, I probably know as much about Hill 376 mm -hmm. as most folks, because I've written about it, I've interviewed everybody, and I know what the battle records say. But what would happen, there was an enemy force on Hill 376, and, and they had bunkers surrounding the top of that hill, a couple hundred meters off. You'd be moving your infantry unit along, uh, going up the hill, lots of vegetation, and all of a sudden, machine gun would op open up on you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would open up are you're 5, 10, 15 meters away, very close. Everybody goes down, and you return fire, and 
that's when we started using helicopters and, and uh, artillery close in. Uh, artillery would be shot out and then walked back. Or the helicopters would come in and, and be right over the unit firing directly down on the bunker. So they were using bunkers on Hill 376 extensively. And uh, we weren't. We were always moving. They were always stationary. Except the final day, they were they had a, a small battalion attacking our company, mm-hmm. and they were in the open and got ma- basically shot up really bad. Um, that's the climatic battle uh, on Hill Three Seven Six. They attacked our company with a reinforced company, maybe a small battalion. They had lost a lot of casualties, and our artillery took them out and. Uh, uh, we didn't hear much more from them after that. So let me ask you a question about um, leadership under fire, how, your decision-making process. If you were, uh, so when you're in situations where, you know, you pick and choose who goes into the more dangerous, who takes the more dangerous route or mission versus maybe one that's not as dangerous, how do you, um, do you have time to think about who do I really want to send and, and who might not make it back? You know, who, you know, oh. do you want, you know? That's a good question, and, and uh, it, that comes all the way down from the battalion commander to their company commanders to their platoon leaders to the squad leaders. Who I knew, I knew in the thirty guys that I had who my best combat leaders are were, and uh, that happens all the way down. And even as guys, you know, are taken casual or, or become casualties, you know who the next in line is. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that's very critical, um, uh, to, to, to know who your fighters are and how to put them in. And, um, that's kind of tough because a lot of times your best guys get hit or wounded. The concept of a point man illustrates your question. The single guy who is out in front of a platoon or a company while it's moving is called a point man. Just what it says. He's most likely the guy that's going to, he's out there to detect the enemy. You know, you're moving and there's bunkers and they're concealed, but he's out there. He's the most, one of your most experienced guys. And you know what? He wants to be out there. Mm -hmm. Nobody walks point that doesn't want to walk point. The guys who really know their stuff want to walk point because they think they're the best guy to do it. And the second reason is they want to take care of the other guys. So it's sort of a self-sacrificial thing. Mm-hmm. And they have great respect in walking point. And they, they volunteer to do it. Again, you don't have to force a guy to walk point. You don't want somebody out there, you've got to force to do it. Uh, but you have plenty of volunteers. And that, that goes all the way down in all the other assignments that you get. We stayed together pretty much as a group for the most part once we got down to Tampi um, <laughs> by necessity. So what about how do you balance it so that you don't have you always have your your hard charger. You don't want to burn them out and always give them the tough task because, you know, they're the one who can do it. How, how do you balance out? Hey, you know what? I'm going to use someone less less skilled, but who could use the experience. I don't, I don't know. I think I, I think you play your first team as much as you can. Um, you know, for example, uh, 
on May 21st, when we had this big day-long battle, uh, it's really in the prologue of my story, we lost our most senior E7, uh, Sergeant First Class Ruiz. He, he was like a dad to his platoon. He took care of them. He, he, he was going to go home in just a few months. He put in 20 years in the military. He was going to retire. He was the he was the most senior infantry person we had in our entire company. And he gets killed early in on that uh, battle on the 21st, trying to reach one of his soldiers who had been wounded. And um, for infantry guys, you just can't the good. I mean, good infantry guys, they're all good. The guys who have really got a heart for what they're doing, you can't hold them back. And I'll make that point against for medics, too. One of the biggest problems, we, we, we lost nine medics in 22 days, killed. Mm. And, 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 and another amount almost at large wounded. And part of the problem is the medics will go where the guys are that are wounded. And sometimes you got to hold them back. Sometimes they go before you can hold them back. And a lot of times they're right up there in the front, you know, taking care of guys that are wounded and they get killed or wounded themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, that is an untold story, if anything is. Nobody has respect in the infantry unit more than the guy, the medics are supporting the infantry. Mm -hmm. uh, are, they're, they're remarkable. Are, are the medics attached to the company or are they sort of separate? They are. They have a different MOS. They, they're in a medical platoon in the battalion, and they're farmed out or attached to the infantry companies. And, um, you know, uh, one of the – I'll say it's one of the biggest failures. One of the things that I could not do that I spent literally a couple of years trying to find out, my medic came in at Tam Key uh, before I got wounded, and uh, I've, I, of course, I knew his name when he came in, but we call all, all of our medics Doc. That's who they are, Doc. Mm -hmm. And uh, 50 years later, nobody can remember this medic's name. I can't remember it. The guys in the platoon can't remember it that are still living. And I can't find him. I've been, I've been all over the Internet. Uh, I've even done a congressional uh, with my local congressman to help me with the with the uh, uh, National Archives to do a search, he remains nameless except for Doc, and he was he was really uh, his conscientious objector. Mm -hmm. Happened to be a black soldier. Looked like he could play wide receiver on any college team and maybe even pros. Mm -hmm. Great grin, very quiet, conscientious objector right up there where the fighting's going on. I gave him, I tell the story in the book, but I gave him my 45 caliber pistol, one that I'd purchased. It wasn't a government issue. It was a match quality. I gave it up to him because he was didn't carry a weapon. Uh -huh. He smiled and he said, well, thank you, sir. Uh, later, I got wounded pretty quick after that. Later, I find out, this is years later, he'd stuck it in the bottom of his rucksack didn't even have it out. Hmm. So, uh, you know, yeah, that's, that's the kind of guys they were. So just amazing. Yeah. So, so after the battle was done, Oh, well, I guess you were wounded. So was that, that it for you as far as Vietnam war? Yeah. 
I was medevac. Yes, I was medevac out. Um, I couldn't walk or anything. And thankfully, you know, I healed up after about eight or nine months. But I went went straight out and um, over to Japan. Had to stay in Japan six weeks to get set up for travel home, and you know, then was in the hospital about a month or so, and then released and went to Germany. Hmm. So that not everybody gets medevac all the way out, but uh, enough do. Typically, if the guy's not hurt bad enough, he won't even take a medevac. Hmm. He's lightly wounded. If it's a scratch or a grazing or something like that, usually if a guy gets medevac, they're going to they're gonna be taken out of Vietnam. You don't heal too good under jungle conditions, and they really hmm. don't have a place to put you while you're healing up. So if it's not too personal, what what was going through your head when you got wounded? Like, you know, that that's the one place I talk about myself a little bit in the book because you know, number one, you never expect to get hit. Here you are in the middle of all this fighting and all. Things were quiet the night I got hit. Uh, uh, M seventy nine grenade fired by an in, enemy guy landed right at my feet within three feet. I mean, within a meter from me, kill radius is five meters, meaning that if you're within five meters, you ought to be dead if it comes in point down. Mine came in at a 45-degree angle. I got blown out in the open just as they opened up with an AK automatic rifle to spray our unit. I'm laying there out in the open. The first thing you think about is I'm hit, and it's like a surprise, you know, because you've been going through all this stuff and you haven't been hit. So it's a surprise when you get hit. And then the next thing you wonder is how bad are you hit? Well, you know, when you got blood all over your jungle uh, of things and all that, you think you're hit pretty bad. And uh, I, I don't even remember the explosion. I just remember going through the air. Well, okay, so I, I start crawling over to get out of the open and, and my medic pops up and he says, he says, three, six, I'm going to come out and get you. <laughs> there, There's that medic, you know, uh, and I said, please, I, I didn't say please. I, I told him to stay where he was. I would come to him. And he patched me up. But as I was crawling, you know, you, you don't know, I couldn't move my legs. I was using my arms. I, <laughs> this is sort of a family joke now. Uh, I'm about 10 meters away from where he is, the medic is. And I get stuck. I can't move. I, I look down, and there's this bloody-looking stick thing sticking out of the top of my boot. It, 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 it's caught in a clump of grass, and it's keeping me from moving. And I look, and I, and I, you know, I, I can't say what I thought, but I, I, I knew I thought it was my leg bone. Hmm. And uh, I reached down to grab it, and hook it from the clump of grass. Turned out to be a stick. Hmm. <laughs> A bloody stick. You couldn't tell. It looked like a leg bone. Hmm. And I said, okay. I told myself, okay, you're going to be all right. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and I crawled along. Mm -hmm. but, uh, so so who took over for you after you were wounded? My young Sergeant E5, my best combat leader, Jim Littleton, who died in 2018. Hmm. He, uh, he, he had just been promoted to Sergeant a few months before mm -hmm. uh, guys respected him. Uh, he knew what he was doing. He was raised. 
the way the way I tell his story in the book, he was raised in the swamps of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And had fished, was outdoors all the time. When replacements did come in, he was looking for guys that were raised just like him. And one of his best soldiers turned out to be a guy who went on to be a city cop that was raised in the city. Yeah. I said, Jim, what about this guy? What about Rob? Kind of breaks your theory, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so so were so I assume you tried to get info about what was going on with the guys after you were taken out. Um almost impossible. Mm-hmm. What what happened is uh I did talk to a couple of them that I met in the hospital in Japan, but they, they were different companies and we, you know, we shared what information we had, but I didn't know about my platoon or my company. And then you get sent to the States. There's, there's no email. There's no long distance. There's, you know, letter writing is, is, is not really the way to do it. You, you can't, you don't really even know how to go about that. And then, Right after I healed up, I get I got sent to Germany for thir- uh, forty two months. Mm. I was in Germany, and so you really got this geographical distance. And frankly, I I'll be very straightforward. And I say this in the book: nobody wanted to talk about Vietnam. Mm. Vietnam was done. Vietnam was not going so well. I volunteered to go back after eighteen months in Germany, and I was told by the Department of the Army uh, branch people. We don't need you in Vietnam. We need you in German. We're rebuilding German. And uh, so I didn't go back. Mm. And and I think for survival purpose, professionally, mentally, emotionally, all that, you're looking forward. You're not looking back. From time to time, I would think, what happened? Because I knew I got wounded before the big battle. The The night before the big battle, I always had a question mark. How did my guys do? How many of them made it? So that when I got this call in 2015, it was out of the blue about a reunion. Wild horses couldn't keep me away from that. Yeah. And uh, I actually got some closure. My entire, you know, 40-something years since Vietnam, I didn't know what happened. That's, yeah, wow. Now, but... You uh, did you go past twenty years in the army though? You stayed in, right? I went, I went a little past twenty, but not much because mm. I developed a lung problem, which I still have. Mm. You've been fortunate that I haven't been coughing in your face. Yeah. <laughs> I I have COPD and asthma, which developed in my last uh, years in the military, mm-hmm. and I actually left active duty because of a medical condition rather than because of wanting to. I would have been happy to spend another 10 or 15 years in the military and it just was not to be. So I, I asked that question though, because I'm curious if, did you come across any of the, uh, the guys in the 101st that you were out there with during your 20 years? Did you cross paths with any of them? I'm thinking not really. Most of those guys got out Hmm. very, you know, the staying in the military, uh, uh, you know, with all that was going on in Vietnam, uh, it, it was not looked upon as, as, as a nice, easy, or look forward to career. Mm-hmm. I had already made that commitment, and many, many other guys did too. 
I mean, somebody rebuilt the army after Vietnam, and it was the guys that stayed in. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm talking from general officers down. And there's great books written about the rebuilding of the army after Vietnam. Mm-hmm. The army needed to be rebuilt after Vietnam. It was was becoming a hollow core. You know, where were the senior guys that were supposed to be in these combat units? They weren't there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the attention turned to the Middle East and to Germany. You know, we were still thinking about fighting the Russians in the Fulda Gap in Germany mm-hmm. uh, back in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, all that's gone away now. And that's except the Middle East. Yeah, that's interesting because, um, you know, post Iraq and Afghanistan, I think the military is filled with people who do have combat experience and stayed in. And yet here you have in Vietnam, it's the opposite where people decided, you know, for a very, you know, variety of reasons, you know, they're getting out. So it's kind of an interesting comparison. Yeah, I think so. And, 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 you know, we went to a volunteer army after Vietnam. Mm -hmm. That that was one of the major great changes. Uh, Now, I, I will tell you this, in the 101st, we had a lot of volunteers. A lot of volunteer soldiers. And I would say volunteers could be include the guys who were going to be drafted, but they volunteered, they signed up, they enlisted mm-hmm. so they could get what they wanted to do rather than as a draftee what they were told to do. Right. Uh, we got a lot of volunteers in the 101st Airborne. And I, I'm proud to say I never served. Well, I'm not proud to say I never served in the 101st again, but I didn't. I went to Germany and spent two different tours in 3rd Armored Division. I was a mechanized infantry soldier after Vietnam. Hmm. But 101st has got one of the best reputations of any combat unit in the entire U.S. Army. Hmm. Well known. Uh, I think they've recently done some Facebook uh, surveys. And 101st, one of the most recognized a publisher said uh, they're the most recognized in Europe, too, particularly in uh, England and uh, Netherlands, where they fought uh, in Germany, Belgium. Wow. That part, they're pretty well known. Hmm. Um, so are there so I, I wanted to turn to um, sort of more about the research you did for the book, uh, the interviews. Yeah. But are there any other parts of the book that you want to highlight before we, we move on? Well, toward the end, we can highlight the epilogue where I asked the question, was it worth it serving, you know, to the sacrifice of Vietnam? Mm-hmm. That's that's still one of the bigger questions. If you want me to address it right now, I'll tell you that when we come back with something else. It's, a, it's uh, your choice. I mean, um, yeah, I don't want you to reveal stuff to people. You know, I want them to go and buy the book and read it. But uh, yeah. you can say, say, yeah, you can make your point. Well, that. That is the big question that people want to know, particularly if combat guys, particularly, you know, that's a that's a very um, varied answer. You ask a mom who lost her son. Most of the moms who lost their sons are now dead. But if you lost a mom, ask a mom, was it worth it? They'll tell you absolutely not. I mean, you know. The guys that served there, particularly the guys that served in combat, will tell you, yeah, it's worth it. You know, today is Vietnam Veterans Day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the guys that I know who are combat veterans in Vietnam say, we do not need this day. 
you know, if a guy, if somebody wishes you well for this day, you got to be, you know, polite and cordial. Vietnam, the, the regular Veterans Day is good enough for Vietnam veterans. We don't need a special day, personal opinion. Uh, and, and that was set up because guys were not recognized a lot of times when they came back from Vietnam. But the greatest recognition would be just to be recognized along with the Korean War guys and the World War II guys and the World War I guys and the Iraq guys and the Afghanistan guys and not pull the Vietnam guys out for special treatment. Mm-hmm. It's just, but anyway, that that's well beyond anything that I'll change. So, yeah. But, uh, but, any, but anyway, let me just say, um, the question comes down to it is not so much was the sacrifice worth it because people made different sacrifices. Hmm. What is true is the question is, did the guys do their job when they were called upon by their nation? Mm-hmm. And I would say absolutely beyond measure, beyond the call of duty, popular video game now. Hmm. They gave the young combat infantry guys that I know, they gave everything and more. And uh, so, yes, they certainly did their duty. And uh, that's an important question right there, because a lot of people have different views of the Vietnam veteran as some kind of psycho, some kind of drug addict, some kind of homeless person. And that's not true of 90-something the high nannies of Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. That That's just something that was laid on them by the anti-war movement, mm-hmm. and it's been a long time uh, taking that off their backs. Yeah, yeah. And the importance of, of a book like yours to point out um, those details and that information. Yeah. And, and I'll also mention uh, for listeners, it's March 29th, if you're curious when we recorded and when uh, Vietnam Veterans Day is, um, it's March 29th. But like you say, you know, you, a lot of them don't want special treatment. They want to just be part of the, the great, uh, the, the, the whole organization, the whole group. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could add to that, Chris, sure. uh, in writing the book, none of these guys want to be, wanted to be pictured as heroes. They didn't, they didn't want any special recognition. They just wanted their story told. And that I'm privileged to be able, greatly honored to tell their story. And beyond that, that's all they're looking for. You know, the fact this particular battle was covered up, mm-hmm. uh, uh, makes it a little bit harder for these guys that I'm writing for, but that, that kind of covers, carries over to a lot of Vietnam soldiers. They came home and uh, nobody much cared about asking them how it was. And that's not true of everybody. That, ha- that happened an awful lot, hmm. you know. And uh, But I tell guys now, let's just suck it up. You know, it's been 50 years. Uh, Vietnam veterans certainly been recognized now. Hmm. Uh, but let's... You know, let, let's focus on the guys who are out there uh, doing the actual fighting, too. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to leave out the artillery guys or the medics or the supply guys or the communicators or the aviators. 
the second most honorable guys that we had out there were the, the helicopter pilots mm-hmm. who would fly right in with us and bring out, bring us out and always under fire. You know, there's, I am, I emphasize the infantry and that's what my, the best recommendation I had said about my book was said by some, the, the president of the National Infantry Association. Mm-hmm. It's a book for infantry, about infantry, by an infantryman. Well, he used the word infantryman all the way through. Let me say that again. For infantrymen, about infantrymen, by an infantryman. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm proud to be able to say that, but I, I really spent a lot of time commending all those fellows who were made the infantry able to do their job. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's got, uh, um, you bring up a point that I think I was assuming throughout that uh, you guys were operating, moving out uh, on foot from a base, but I forget, you, you know, you have your cavalry, air cav, uh, bringing yeah. you in. Was it were were all the battles initiated by that way? Mostly, uh, air mobile was the term. Mm-hmm. They had the first air cav, um, but we we were the first designated air mobile division. In fact, in '69 we started taking soldiers into the 101st who were not airborne qualified, and uh, they usually had to put up with a a lot of hassle, you know, if they were, didn't have their jump wings at mm-hmm. first. But once they got in battle, it didn't matter because mm-hmm. nobody was jumping out of parachutes yeah. in Vietnam. Uh, but we did go in on helicopter assaults. Uh, and that's, I, I spend a little bit of time explaining uh, why veterans, combat veterans from Vietnam, when they hear the whop whop of a, uh, a Huey or a UH-1 Iroquois, it brings back some very tense moments. Mm. And, uh, but yeah, uh, the reason we went down to the Americal to reinforce them in a tactical emergency is because we were air mobile and we could get around a lot faster than they could. They didn't have the helicopters that we had. Oh, okay. Um, so let me, uh, so you, you mentioned you did, uh, 40 some interviews. Did you also, uh, how much, um, did you research into other parts, you know, say like what the enemy was doing, that sort of thing? Yes. Um, uh, I, I did some extensive research into the battle records. Uh, every battalion, uh, sometimes companies like an aviation company would write an after action report after something like Operation Lamar Plain. Mm-hmm. I went to the National Archives and collected all that stuff. I've got about three or four boxes of records brigade after-action reports, but battalion after-action reports. All this stuff has been dumped uh, now in the National Archives and, and many online sources like the Texas Tech Vietnam Archives. Mm-hmm. Big. That's a big uh, resource. So I pulled up these battle records. I went into the U.S. Uh, the, the, the U.S. Army Center of Military History where all this official history of it is up at Fort McNair, Washington. It's all online. I don't have to go there. It's online. Oh, okay. And uh, But there's nothing online. There's nothing in their stuff about Operation Lamar Plain. Oh, wow. <laughs> We're changing that. It's part of, that is a reason I wrote the book. And uh, I've got a representative from the U.S. Army Center of Military History at Fort Campbell, 
where honoring versus home is. He loves the book. When I say he loves the book, he thinks it's well researched. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it, 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 it accurately portrays this missing window in one of the largest major offensive operations the 101st did in their last year. You know, most people don't know the 101st was in Vietnam seven years. They were the last combat division to leave. Oh, wow. Yeah, they 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 fought one year in World War One. I. I mean, World War Two. Obviously, they, they weren't around World War One, But they took over 9,000 casualties in one year in the in World War Two. They've had some very brutal fighting. Can't take anything away from them. They fought. They. That's why they're a story division. Everybody remembers uh, Band of Brothers, uh, uh, Battle of Bulge, all that stuff. But seven years in Vietnam, the 101st had 28,000 killed and wounded. Mm. That's a large number. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't. You don't really compare the two. I mean, if the 101st in World War II had had as many casualties and been in the wars long as the Vietnam War, it had 60-something thousand casualties, more than the entire, well, mm. that wouldn't be more than, we had 52,280 killed in Vietnam, mm-hmm. but that included wounded too. But you can't compare the two. Both of them have a legacy. Mm-hmm. I was, let me add this. The legacy of, a bit, I volunteered to be with 101st. I was with the Ranger Department as an instructor before I went to Vietnam, hmm. how does a lieutenant get to do that? Well, they were short NCOs there, too. Huh. I volunteered to go to jump school or airborne before I went to Vietnam just so I could be in the 101st. Huh. I knew about the 101st. And I went on my Christmas leave in order to do it. And uh, I got the long bend, and they said, what unit do you want to go to? Three choices. I put 101st three times, and I was totally surprised they gave me the 101st. Because so, it usually doesn't work that way in the Army. <laughs> uh, yeah, you were motivated. <laughs> I was motivated. Yeah. And so I, I've been, I was proud to be there, proud to be associated with them. I'm a lifetime member of the 101st Airborne Association now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, they're they're kind of helping me get the book out to the troops, and uh, that that. That's really what I want. I don't care about book sales. I really don't care about book sales. I care about getting the story out. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that that's that will begin to happen. You're you're the first interview that I've had. And I'm delighted oh, wow. that uh, Daniel set it up with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm glad too. Um, I like your stuff. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> so let me ask, so um, just thinking about the research you did, was there anything you came across? Oh. That surprised you? I was surprised at how inaccurate the records can be sometimes. <laughs> Frankly, if I didn't have the records, I wouldn't have wrote the book. So, I mean, it's kind of a catch-22. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the records don't tell the nitty-gritty stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. When I read the battalion after action report for the 1st to 501st, there's not much in there about the battalion getting down to around 50% strength, combat strength. Mm. And it talks about what we went in with and what we came out with in July. Well, there, there, that May part and that June part was pretty, pretty bad on stuff. Mm-hmm. But then I would go up to the MACV records 
paper, they would tell me there were 1,100 or 1,200, 1,200 shortages of infantry MOSs and, and, and that military occupational specialty was just not available to bring all the units up. So I, I, that's the type of stuff that surprised me. I was a lieutenant. I, 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 knew, I knew nothing more than the average lieutenant or the average enlisted guys. I knew what was happening around me. When I saw the breadth of this battle, the, the how it started, how it was hidden in the end, hidden for good reasons, I might add. Mm. But leaving it covered up for 50 years, that's not good. Mm-hmm. And the reason it didn't get more attention is because when Vietnam was over, it was over. People didn't want to talk about it. For me to go dig it up and write a book about it, you know, I had one of my buddies say, why are you messing with writing a book on Vietnam? Hmm. I said, I want to tell the story of the young guys that fought. Yeah. He didn't have much of an answer on that. <laughs> Yeah, what can he you say? agreed with that. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, that, that, that's why I did it. But you know, here, here's an insight that I got just recently. Mm-hmm. When we were fighting in Vietnam, World War One was as far back as Vietnam is today. Hmm. You know, we're talking fifty years, a half a century. Yeah. Well, how do you write a book fifty years after the fact? Well, you better have some live people to talk to, and you better have some good records. And I had both. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and I, you know, a lot of people say you can't even set a historical incident in its right setting until fifty or a hundred years go by. You know, hmm. Maybe that's true. But it was tough starting with a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> Uh, and, and and building it from there. I, t- I jokingly tell people that uh, writing a book like this is about 80% research and about 60% writing and rewriting and rewriting. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, ha- I I mention every single casualty that's in the records, either killed or wounded in our battalion. Mm-hmm across uh, almost a five-month period. And just doing the casualty data alone took me a good six, seven months. And I know it's not 100% accurate because the records aren't 100% accurate. But I gave it it my best shot. uh, And uh, knowing that family, I wrote the book for the families as much as I did the men. Mm -hmm. Most of these... I have one endorsement on the book jacket from family of Jim Littleton, the guy that I keep bringing up who was my best combat leader, took over my platoon. Mm-hmm. They say in the endorsement of the book, they didn't know these stories hmm. about their dad. Their uh, dad didn't tell them. Wow. Only when Jim started working with me and writing the book did he start telling them stories he wanted them to remember. And so the book has got stuff in there they would not have known about their own dad. And I think that goes across the entire group. And most of these young veterans, they were the sons of veterans in many cases. Mm -hmm. Their dads, their uncles, their granddads had fought in Korean War, fought in World War II. And they had a legacy to uphold themselves. 
they didn't want to embarrass the family. Hmm. I mean, to, <laughs> if I could tell you one quick story. Sure. We had a guy captured. He's, I love it. He's got a great central place in the story. I talked about it being captured. Gets captured the first couple of days he's in the field with us. Things are really going hot. And he gets captured. Well, after I'm interviewing him, I said, I said, Jesse, uh, you did, you said that you didn't answer the questions that the enemy was putting to you. Uh, was that because of your Geneva Convention training? And he said, no, Mr. Sherwood, it's because I didn't want to embarrass my family. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I, he's gone up, you know, He's gone on to work at the post office for thirty something years since he got out of uh, got out of uh, the army. Mm-hmm. Had a long period of healing up. He was wounded. He was sick, mm. and uh, he's kind of typical typical of a lot of the Vietnam veterans. I do a life after Vietnam appendix in the book. Okay, where I talk about I, I think I included thirty five of the guys in, in, in my company. Mm-hmm. I even include some of them that are dead. Many of them had long marriages. Many of them have worked for companies for decades. You know, uh, being divorced is not a bad thing. I mean, it's not something you can't overcome, and I don't put people down for it. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying some of them had a divorce and then had a long marriage of 30 years. And it was just those times. The 60s were very turbulent times. Kind of reminds me of what we're going through today. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King gets assassinated in, in April. Bobby Kennedy, running for president, gets assassinated a few months later. Mm-hmm. Airplane hijackings almost weekly. Oh, wow. Bombings, war protests, streets filling up with protesters, a lot of damage. Uh, it's almost like deja vu again, so, you know, hmm. and, uh, Interesting. and I'm hopeful we'll be able to get through it again, like we did in the sixties. Yeah. But it was a tough time for a young guy to graduate from high school and be put on a distant battlefield mm-hmm. for the first time. Yeah. And, uh, well, let me ask you another question on the research. Um, I hate okay. to, I feel like you're, you're telling me important stuff, but I, I, I keep okay, pulling I'm not digging there. in. Okay, let me let me dig in on the research. Okay, so, go ahead. Shoot. So, was there a question about what happened that you really wanted to get an answer for, and maybe you had difficulty getting an answer, or, and and you finally did, or maybe you still have a big question like, I wonder what happened in this, you know, this particular instance. Well, what I could not find out is uh, in the book. After the decisive battle on Hill 376, a call comes in and pulls the battalion off the hill. No explanation. We hadn't gotten to, or I said we, I'm kind of, that's the corporate we. I wasn't there. I'm writing the story. The battalion had been trying to get to the top of that hill for a good week and a half. Mm-hmm. And they were close. And the battalion just automatically gets pulled off the hill with no explanation. And they get extracted and taken to different places. Our company, Delta, went back to the recreation area for three days. Hmm. And they hadn't been in one in four or five months. Oh, wow. So uh, (laughs) that was a good time. But why all of a sudden 
when you're close to the top of the hill you've been fighting to get to, do you just get pulled out? And I think it, you know, unanswerable. And I did a lot of research to try, went to the MACV records and all that. MACV hardly even mentioned Operation Lamar Point. Hmm. They did, it was very cryptic. In fact, I, I go into great detail on this, talking about research. Research, because if I was going to make the charge that the battle was covered up or hidden, I had to have my facts right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found I found the smoking gun, so to speak. The press releases on Operation Lamar Plain that would go to the media typically were dated October a month and a half after the operation was completed. Hmm. And it did not have all the details in it about the casualties and all that. I mean, I actually found the records uh, on the internet. Didn't have to go to the archives to find them. Hmm. And so going back to being pulled off the hill, I think by, you know, that would have been June 10th, the decisive battles on the 9th and aftermath on the 10th pulled off on the 11th, extracted on the 12th, that probably was to to ensure that this, no more casualties, or, or to minimize casualties, if it would be the right term, mm-hmm. to keep the casualties down, because the casualties were already approaching uh, large numbers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there were, I think, we... We killed most of the guy, most of the enemy on the hill. Mm-hmm. But uh, so th- I would say that's the biggest thing is uh, I would want to know what did Nixon know when he made that announcement? Did he know about Hamburger Hill? No, I don't think he did. Mm-hmm. Did he know about Operation Mark Plain? No, I don't think he did. I got into the traffic between Kissinger and the ch- chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff mm-hmm. at that level, trying to figure out. What did they know? And, you know, what did they know and when did they know it? You know, that's a typical question. Mm-hmm. But the big thing that I found out was casualties, high casualties, were in fact one of the hottest political topics in the spring of 69. Mm. Okay. And, that when, you know, Nixon was already planning to pull out guys in the, in the summer or late early fall. High casualties were really, really trying to be minimized. And uh, when the 101st came up with a thousand casualties in a matter of a little over a month, mm-hmm. that just wasn't going to fly. But trying to piece all that, I, I've got a long appendix in my book. I didn't want my book to be about all that. Mm-hmm. I wanted my book to be about the soldiers. Okay. But I got one of the longest appendices in the world explaining all of this about why Operation Lamar Plain was undisclosed. Makes good reading. I'd really like to do a separate article on that appendix for the War College or somebody like that, because strategically it's a very interesting uh, uh, story. Mm -hmm. It sounds like readers can enjoy the um, sort of the story, and then at the end anyone who wants to dig deeper has that right there. Exactly. In fact... uh, I've got a book review coming out in Military History Journal uh, here in the spring, and uh, I tried to sell the editor uh, on telling that story 
you know, military history journal, all that kind of stuff. He wanted he wanted more on the in the in the foxhole level, mm-hmm. and so uh, we're not running that one. They're just running a book review, but I, I'm going to get that story out. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe somebody else will pick it up once the book comes out and want to do it themselves. So was writing this book, was it uh, pretty emotional for you or is there enough time has passed that, that, uh, I, I had to distance myself from a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it, the closure was wonderful. The relationship with the guys was wonderful. That mitigated a lot of the trauma because Frankly, I had guys telling me that didn't know what had happened, that it was therapeutic for them to read the early drafts of the book. Hmm. I never knew that. I never, I never wondered. I always wondered why this and that and what was going on. And, and, uh, so there was some closure for them too. And, 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 and the good reception that I got, the encouragement that I got, the, uh, really made it better for me. I didn't dwell on the casual. I did go back and I decided nobody, I'm not going to just have numerical casualties. Mm -hmm. If a guy got killed or wounded, his name was going to be in the book. Mm. And and, and that separates it from a lot of other books as well. Mm. Uh, The the sterile statistics go up the chain of command, but at the company and battalion level, their names, guys that you've served with. Mm So um, I'm, I'm going down a rabbit hole again. No, <laughs> so it's fine. It's draw me back to the uh, to, to the research. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, what part of um, what part of this whole process was most enjoyable for you? I think back in twenty uh, last year. No, it was 2019. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I got to tell the guys. I, I, I had an early manuscript, and I got to tell them about it. And their reception of all of that was really enjoyable. I wrote it for them, so mm. they didn't like it. I wouldn't. Have, <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. Mm. <laughs> but but that was very enjoyable. The writing was a lot like a labor of love. I mean, with a big L uh, for the labor and a big L for the love. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I ever have. You know, I, my family knows me. It's kind of task oriented and. The guys that I've worked with, big companies like BA Systems, uh, 12-hour, 14-hour days, mm-hmm. I put in those kinds of hours, but I think I worked as hard on this book as any project I've ever worked on, and I've never worked on a project like this for almost five years. Mm-hmm. And I did not grow tired of it. I'm not tired of it now. I'm taking a break. I tell people it's not like turning in a term paper. It's mm-hmm. more like graduation from college. Hmm. You know, because it's taken that long to get it done. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm, my, my publisher and editor, uh, we talk about birthing a baby with a gestation period of almost five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I finally just this week, or, or actually last week, got to hold the actual book yeah. in my hands. And I looked at it and I said, hey, that's thinner than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But it's actually got, it's, uh, oh, well, shoot, I don't even know. It's uh, got over 300 and something pages, so it's not too thin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 
I'm delighted with the reception that it's getting. And I, I, I could not be more pleased because I didn't expect hardly anything. You know, I, I started to say this on the research. Uh, the 101st Airborne Division, now called Air Assault, still got airborne, but it's 101st Airborne Division Air Assault. Mm-hmm. Being a story division that goes all the way back to World War II, their history is practically sacred ground. You just don't pop up from nowhere, mm-hmm. pretty much as a nobody, and start talking about something missing from the Vietnam history of the 101st. Uh-huh. And uh, I, in the pressure of making sure the research is done properly, thoroughly, accurately, all that stuff was high. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing I want to have the book do is flop because it's filled with inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. Um, two years in 2019, I took an early manuscript up to the 101st and briefed it to the commanding general, mm-hmm. two-star. Mm-hmm. And he had his entire staff in there and told him what I, I was about and I wanted them to be fully on board and mm-hmm. all of that. And uh, he he was very gracious and very receptive. And before the publication came out, I, I really tried to, to bring up the senior historian at the 101st the same way mm-hmm. to make sure he knew and he was okay with what I had written. Mm-hmm. Because, no, frankly, the 101st is my number one audience. The mm-hmm. veterans, the veterans are part of the 101st, mm-hmm. and but if the 101st had, had crashed the book, you know, I don't, it, it would deserve to be crashed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they like it. The ones that have seen it like it. And uh, and so now the National Infantry Association has indicated they're they're behind the book too. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, so two pillars. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Um, let, so this this question, you might not want to answer it, but but maybe you do. What what if what if you had it instances that were sort of embarrassing or not not d- doesn't show an individual or, or or an organization in a good light? Would you what would you do with that information? Number one, frankly. Uh, I didn't try and front that kind of information. Uh, I wasn't out there to, to poke a sharp stick in anybody's eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even explained two things that I did that might be criticized. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I got wounded because I was thinking more of the battle the next day rather than getting our security up for mm-hmm. that evening. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I tell that that's an honest story. Mm-hmm. There's some other stories in there that um, when when there's a disagreement on what happened, I looked at the records and I, I listened to all the eyewitness testimonies and I wrote it the best I could. Mm-hmm. There's some incidents in there where there's some disagreements on actual what happened. Mm-hmm. I tried to not put anyone purposely in a negative light. If I did that at all, I probably did it to the battalion commanders uh, who did not get on the ground with their troops mm. either during the battle or after the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, air mobile concept was very early. Uh, I mean, it was, it, it was 
is dynamic, is being developed. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, a battalion commander was at 5,000 feet above the battle, out of the range of 51 caliber fire, number one, mm-hmm. talking to us on the radio and cannot see through the trees what's happened. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Hamburger Hill battle, commanders, battalion commanders actually got on the ground. Uh, Colonel Honeycutt is noted for that. He was right there with his troops. Mm-hmm. So you can't really tell what's happening in a contact if you're in a helicopter or listening on a radio. Just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's okay. You know, they got they got to control more than one company. And if you're on the ground, you're only with one company at a time. What should have happened when we were, or again, I'd say we, I wasn't there. When the battalion was extracted and it was off the bottom of the, down at the bottom of the mountain, they were just waiting for extraction the next day. Perfect time to come in and, and buck the troops up. Been fighting hard for 10 days. Somebody up the chain of command, it would be good from the land and tell them what a great job they did. Mm. Or they could have done it at the recreation. It wasn't done. Just knowing how things work now, having been in the Army a long time, probably occupied with reports, mm. trying to explain casualties, trying to figure out what's next. There's a lot to keep you occupied. Mm-hmm. But you cannot forget about the troops. Uh, and, and flying in for five or ten minutes is important if that's all you got. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The troops don't remember those commanders that weren't with them on the ground. Mm-hmm. The guys like Captain Leland Roy, who was with him on the ground, uh, I won't say worship, but mm-hmm. they could not respect him more. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the reunion, uh, he sat kind of off to the side. Uh, he's not a very flashy guy. And I could just see the young soldiers, uh, of course, they were in the 60s and 70 years old. They were coming up to him a couple of two, three at a time, mm-hmm. expressing their gratitude. Well, that, that's the guy who was with the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the, being a commander for five or six months and getting your ticket punched, not to say they weren't good commanders, but the personnel system was turning commanders over every five or six months. Mm-hmm. They weren't on the ground with the guys. They didn't build a relationship that you need uh, to fight an infantry ground war. And I, I think... A, I think our army has well learned that over the last uh, 20, 30 years in Iraq and mm-hmm. Afghanistan. I'm, I don't have any concerns about the army doing that now. Okay. But uh, in our unit, uh, it was kind of new. No, I get that. Um, let me ask a, a little bit of a different question. Um, did, did your company capture any enemy prisoners? Yes, we did. And I make the point of saying that we always treated them well. Mm-hmm. We not only treated the prisoners well, we treated the deceased or the killed in action enemy soldiers well. Hmm. We would do things like wrap their bodies up in their own ponchos so they could be recovered later. Mm-hmm. It, it just, we were disciplined from that. We, you know, I, I write about capture, not capturing, but uh, bringing, you know, in the battle area, coming across 20 and 30 children. Uh, with maybe a couple of women with them trying to get them out of the battle area. Mm-hmm. We always treated them with great respect and care. And 
concern about their safety. Those are the type of things that don't get reported. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all about uh, this atrocity or that or this. Mm-hmm. But we were even to the even to the uh, enemy soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know, right about one. You know, been captured, hadn't eaten, and uh, we fed him and gave him water before we tied him up. For the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. <laughs> Fair enough. How do you feel when you when you met the the enemy for the first time? Did you have what sort of thoughts did you have? You mean uh, like, aside from being scared to death? Right, right. Like when you brought in a the first time you met a, a Vietnamese yeah. prisoner. I never had. I never even with the casualties, and I I deal with this a little bit in the book. Mm-hmm. There are guys right today that hate the guys who we were fighting. Mm-hmm. I never developed hate. Was I attempting to kill them? Yes. Mm-hmm. But, and, and there, there was not a religious basis to this. I, I became a person of faith later. But it was more, they were trying to kill us. We're going to kill them first. Mm-hmm. I did not hate them for what they were doing. Uh, in fact, uh, being an English major, I quote the, the, the poem, uh, having, a minute, uh, having a senior moment right now, uh, the guy that wrote the poem, The Man He Killed, mm-hmm. which basically says, uh, you know, two soldiers meet and one kills the other and there, but, you know, there I, I, I could be in his place, mm-hmm. you know, because mo- most of these NBA soldiers were, were just like our soldiers. They were late teenagers, early 20s off rural farms in North Vietnam. Mm. And they came, you asked me, did I do any research on the enemy? Yes, I did. Uh, they would come down to South Vietnam with their units, and they were usually down there until they were killed or wounded, hmm. or the war was over, as it finally was. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't get letters from home. They didn't get next to kin notifications when they were killed in the field. A lot of times they just got put in a hole somewhere. And the, the the NVA did a great job of recovering their dead off a battlefield. And I, I do think they had a way of knowing who was killed and all of that. But it was very tough on them. And a lot of those young guys, young soldiers, NVA soldiers, good infantrymen, farm boys off the farm up in North Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, that's why I don't hate them. I mean, uh, I, I I respected them while I was there, but I've grown in much greater respect. And uh, I've never gone back to Vietnam like some others have done mm-hmm. to talk to former enemy guys. Mm-hmm. But I tell you, those are some good meetings when that happens. Mm-hmm. Older soldiers talking former enemies, you know. It's uh, actually kind of a amusing story. I have a buddy who uh, he um, he married a v- American guy, total you know American dude, um, who married a Vietnamese girl, and his dad was a Vietnam vet, and her dad was a Vietnam vet on the other side, and they had a they they laughed, they had a laugh at the wedding, you know. It's a great story. Um, anyway, so that's kind of an aside there. Uh, my car dealer, my car dealer's finance officer is a uh, Vietnamese uh, uh, man who was brought here with a boat uh, exodus out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 
I took them, I took one of my maps over him to ask him about a translation uh, and what this word meant. You know, it was on Hill 376. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find it uh, after. Okay, I, he's Vietnamese. He'll know. He's, and he throws his hands up and laughs at me. He says, I don't know that stuff. I've lived in America all my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. It's funny how it goes. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you, how did you have any difficulty getting the book published? You've talked about sort no. of writing issues, but. You know, I haven't. Let me mention something right off the top. Sure. Which I should have mentioned. This book right here, uh, mm-hmm. the title is Brutal Battles of Vietnam, America's Deadliest Days, 1965 to 1972. Mm-hmm. The senior editor of this is Richard Call. This, to me, is one of the best Vietnam books that is on the market. Mm-hmm. took 10 years to produce. Maybe I can get you a copy of this. Oh, that would, but, <laughs> that would be nice. But anyway, Richard Cobb, I was talking to my former platoon sergeant one day, and I said, you know, uh, Gary, we're not in Rich's book. I didn't know Rich at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, I, I looked at his book, and our, our battle is not in there. Of course, it was covered up, undisclosed. Mm-hmm. So I called up Rich one day. I said, Rich, I want to talk to you about this fellow. Have you ever heard of it? No, he had not. And he said, well, maybe it didn't qualify as one of our battles. I said, oh, yes, this would be qualified. <laughs> well, as it turns out, he and I got to talk, and he was a former 101st guy, artillery, uh, RTO, mm-hmm. a young enlisted guy. Found out what I was doing, and he really liked what I was doing. And so I invited him to write the foreword. So he wrote the foreword to my book, Rich Cobb. He's Mm -hmm. a good friend now. Mm -hmm. He was 27-year publisher editor of the Vietnam, uh, not Vietnam, but VFW, Veterans of Foreign Wars magazine. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, he steered me to Casemate Publishers. Oh, okay. Great decision. I would recommend any military writer to consider Casemate. They they treated me well. They... uh, they, they let me be involved in the editing. Of course, I had strong writing background, uh, hmm. but uh, they let me be involved in the process, and, and they fronted my book pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you okay. know, I, I couldn't be happier with the way they treat Consider the uh, managing publisher and, and the managing editor friends now, professional, both of them uh, women. Mm-hmm. And of all play, here's a big surprise, uh, Chris, both in England. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, England, you know, that was a shock to me. Casemate, uh, top military world publisher, and they're going to put me with two English women in England uh-huh. for my Vietnam book. <laughs> and, uh, and I found out that the senior, uh, the, the publishing editor, has done all of their Vietnam books, which are considerable, mm-hmm. more than a few dozen, uh, probably closer to six or seven dozen, all Vietnam. Mm-hmm. She's a graduate. She lives in Oxford. Both of them live in Oxford. And she is an Oxford history graduate and is really up on war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, really up on it. Oh, I and believe it. Del- delight to work with. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but anyway, and the managing managing editor just the same. They've you know no problems at all. 
and uh, five hour difference in time zones was definitely a, a, an issue. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I would send an email to them and uh, they would come into work at what would be two or three o'clock in the morning, my time. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to get a quick answer, I'd be up at that two or three in the morning to oh. read their response. Oh, wow. But, but, uh, but anyway, this book here, great book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Rich Cobb has been my mentor. This has been the first book I've ever done, a uh, mm-hmm. commercial book. And he's been my mentor through it as well. So okay, couldn't be happier with Rich. So do you have um, you have a website or social media for the book or, or your thoughts? I, I do not, but I, I have one under consideration. Frankly, I've been so busy getting the book uh, book out that mm-hmm. I, didn't, I just didn't do anything else. But, I've got a couple of ideas in mind of who to go to. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any recommendations? You can shoot me an email. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you some uh, some ideas um, depending on what you're looking for. Okay. Um, definitely. I, I don't want to sell books on my website, but I don't mind taking comments and doing other stories. I've got some other articles in mind to do mm-hmm. coming out of the book, like on the POW I was talking to you about. Oh, okay. Right. So, um, what do you hope, so we've talked about all the things that you do with the book and, and some of the things you want to do, but overall, what, what do you hope readers take away from this book? Have a fresher, renewed sense of who was fighting, uh, for our country in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, to, to see they were, were men of courage, men of, uh, character, uh, they, they look back now, you know, I'm in touch with, like I said, almost 40 of them. We've had reunions. They're men of integrity. They're proud of what they did. Uh, many of them, most of them say they would do it again, even though the outcome. Hmm. And in a way, it, it made many of them the men who, who they are today. Hmm. It, it was the roughest, most fearful thing that almost all of them had ever experienced in their lives. Some of them maybe have gone through some hard stuff, mm-hmm. uh, but nothing like being in the infantry in Vietnam for often 10, 11 months in a whack. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they that's why they're proud of what they did. It kind of made them the men they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there weren't that many women in the military back in those days, but the... Uh, the hospital, the, the casualty hospital, I think I'm right when saying it's the 27th. I, I'm very quick not to quote stuff off the top of my head. I got so much stuff in my mm-hmm. head. I don't want to get it wrong. Right. But the nurse, the nurse that was killed in Vietnam, uh, was actually in the ward, uh, that was servicing our wounded. And, oh. uh, so I, I, I've got a, I've got her story in the book. Okay. I'm not going to tell it now, mm-hmm. uh, but quite remarkable story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she, I mean, the ward she was in was not with military. She would work with the Vietnamese ward in the American hospital adjacent to the Vietnam guy, our, our soldiers. Mm-hmm. And then when she was off that shift, she would come over to, to work on the military side and put her weekends there so she's quite committed wow but yeah like you say um i encourage people to 
anyone interested in these stories should get the book and, and read it and share it, share it, recommend it to others. Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? No, uh, your, 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 your interviews, uh, that I've, I would encourage people to go on the internet, military people interested in military history. Mm-hmm. I've, sh- I've shared your site out with all my buds Oh, nice! because I didn't know about it until Daniel told me about it. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's excellent. And, uh, and I would, I would say I, I'm, I'm very much appreciate you taking the time to let me talk to you about my book, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm actually, I checked your site out because I want to make sure if my book was going to be up there, I'd be proud for it to be on your site. Yeah. And I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Since I didn't know about it, I yeah. was checking you out. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I am. You know, I, I, I'm motivated to get stories like yours out there and, you know, and, yeah. and have people learn I, about it. I need to read somewhere about the background of your site, why you're doing this. You're doing an excellent job at it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's certainly something that's needed. Oh yeah. But I, I, I'm wondering if places like West Point and uh, the Infantry School know about it. Maybe, so. maybe some individuals. But, um, but yeah. I'll, uh, so, so yeah. Um, thank, thank you for speaking with me, and thank you for all the compliments. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, I, I hope to stay in touch with you. God bless you, and thank you for the time today. Totally enjoyable to me. I hope it was. Uh, to our listeners. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. In the next episode, I speak with Emma Southern about her book on murder in ancient Rome. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Chris Alvarez War Scholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com, and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, SpacewalksMT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.